as we are in our fifth week of Lamentations, our final week. Um, just before I start, huge thanks to the folks who turned up on Friday night for the Working Bee. It's looking fantastic wherever I've looked around the place. Um, so that's really appreciated and um, keeps the property uh, in order. Uh, and also, just an apology for having to look at my face. I look like a Christmas tree. Um, I'm just having a skin treatment for a month where it kind of kills the bad cells that could become sunspots and goes through. And I'll look 21 at the end of it, apparently. Um, but um, anyway, it's like, it's like I have sunburn without a mask and I've been wearing a mask or something. Anyway, probably some of you have done it and it's just um, for the long-term good. Well, in April 1965, Clive Staples Lewis married Joy Davidman. Lewis, better known perhaps to you and me as C.S. Lewis, was a confirmed bachelor who, upon until meeting Davidman, had no priority, time or expectation of getting married. Everyone, including C.S. Lewis himself, was surprised that at the age of 58 he tied the knot. Davidman was an American poet with two small children. She was a former communist from a Jewish background whose life had radically changed through her conversion to Christianity when she met Jesus. Lewis initially corresponded with her and found her to be an intellectual, agreeable intellectual companion and they became close friends. But in order for her to continue living in the UK, Lewis agreed to a civil marriage which negated future visa issues for her. So they were married at a civil registrar's office in Oxford. And it appears that being together suited them both, because thus began a very happy marriage, despite the unusual start. Tragically, only months into their somewhat surprising marital bliss, Davidman complained of pain in her hip and was diagnosed with terminal bone cancer. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, was devastated, having just found such joy. And they decided, despite already being married, to get married again, but this time with vows before God in a Christian marriage. Because of Davidman's prior divorce, it proved hard finding a cleric who would perform the marriage. But one of Lewis's friends agreed to do it, um, agreed to do the marriage, which was done only 11 months after the civil marriage had been performed at her hospital bed. Remarkably, after the marriage, the second marriage, the marriage before God, Davidman's cancer went into remission and they lived happily with her young children. And they enjoyed three and a quarter wonderful and memorable years together until the cancer returned and soon claimed her life. And Joy died in July 1960. Lewis was distraught and inconsolable. He found himself alone but committed to bringing up his two young stepsons. He experienced the full range of emotions that grief takes one through, including anger and rage and depression and a deep awareness of one's own human frailty. He put pen to paper in that time period and wrote of his experience in his well-read book, A Grief Observed. A Grief Observed has assisted countless readers worldwide over the ensuing decades. Interestingly, he initially published A Grief Observed under a pseudonym of N.W. Clerk so that in that 
red-hot emotional time for him. He could maintain his own personal space. And many friends recommended the book to him and said he should read it to assist him. In more recent years, the story of Joy and C.S. Lewis has been made into a Hollywood film, a BBC screenplay, and a theatre production, with actors playing the couple, including Anthony Hopkins, Claire Bloom, Nigel Hawthorne and Deborah Winger, to name a few. Other than the raw power of a very human story, perhaps the thing that has helped so many people has been the way in a grief observed that C.S. Lewis presents not closure as the outcome of grief, but rather grief as a turning point. And that's where we find ourselves in the last chapter of Lamentations. We've been calling each chapter a poem, for that is what they have been, complete with all sorts of literary tools that we've had a brief look at, like acrostics and metaphors. This chapter also has 22 verses for each successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But rather than being a poem, chapter 5 is far more a prayer. And it's shorter a third shorter than last week's reading, Christine, a third shorter than last week's, which was a third shorter than each of chapters 1, 2 and 3. And this shortness is an effective tool. It has a, a, like a tapering off effect on the whole book and it makes it feel like it's ending or concluding. There, there is no drawn out ending to this book of lament. We're taken to the, to the experience of grief, trauma and despair that the people of Jerusalem suffered two and a half thousand years ago and were exposed to their pain and their travail and now the poet will end with powerful effect in this prayer. In some ways Lamentations reads similarly to some of the Psalms like 44 and 60 and 74 and 80 and 83. Here's just a little sample of um, four verses from Psalm 60 but feels so similar to Lamentations. Psalm 60, 1 to 4 says, You've rejected us, God, and burst upon us. You've been angry. Now restore us. You've shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You've shown your people desperate times. You've given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, you've raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. feels so similar in that literary kind of way of expression. Now that psalm, Psalm 60, continues on for 12 verses, but it does feel somewhat similar to what we're encountering here in Lamentations 5. And the effect of all of this together is this coming sense of finality. It's not a promise of resolution that I would like. I like films that have a really happy ending and everyone lives happily ever after. There's no fairy tale or sage advice that you might get in Ecclesiastes. Just a foreshadowing of a turning point. That this will eventually stop and that God is God. Lamentations forces us, it asks us to be mature and compassionate and resist fixing other people's problems or telling them that it will be okay. It doesn't do that. I think that's why Lamentations and C.S. Lewis's account are so helpful to so many. Because his wife, for whom he'd just discovered love, then departs. And it forces him into a painful turning point. And of course, 
Not that we want that, but for those who do experience something like that, we're resisted where he goes on his journey, that we too can make it somehow, but we can. Now, normally you might expect some resolution or tidying up of the story, but as I've said, that's not going to happen here. Perhaps we might expect some sort of at least a futuristic vision that down the track things can be better. Something to look forward to, something to encourage us. Certainly that's what Ezekiel does about the same situation in Ezekiel 40 through 47. Now Ezekiel's one of those Old Testament books that's quite hard to enter and understand because it's re- you've got to know a lot of what's going on in the context. But Without getting stuck in Ezekiel, he foresh- and I love Ezekiel. It's, I've really committed myself to studying it last year, and it's amazing. But he foreshadows about this same scene, Yahweh taking up residence again in a restored Jerusalem. In chapters 40 through 47, he uses this, this section of Ezekiel to paint the picture. This is the first four verses. This is how he starts. So you can see the way Ezekiel foreshadows what will come for Jerusalem. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city, uh, 14th year of the fall of the city, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was on me, and he took me there. In visions of God, he took, and he was actually in Babylon, but the Spirit took, his, took him there to see it. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel, and he set me on a very high mountain, on those on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. It took me there, and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. The man said to me, Son of man, look carefully and listen closely and pay attention to everything I'm going to show you, for that is why you have been brought here. Tell the people everything of Israel you see. And then he does that for the next seven chapters. A futuristic vision of Jerusalem, some hope, something to look forward to. And you can read through Ezekiel 40 to 47 if you want to get that picture of what Ezekiel was shown by the Spirit, which included a restored and a renewed Jerusalem. You don't get that in Lamentations here. We go in a different track. That's why you have to read the whole Bible together to hold it all together. Chapter 5 here follows a basic form of community lament that was common to its era. What happened in a community lament was that there were three sections to how the community would pray together, and that will come up there on the screen for you. Firstly, they would start their lament, their communal lament, with an address to God, and then it would move into a description of their complaint or need. It would be outlined what the problem is. And then they would turn to an appeal for help. That was the basic way of a community lament. Chapter 5 follows that community lament exactly. What happen- uh, here's how it's structured. Have a look at the next slide there. There's an address to God in verse 1. And then the next section is the complaint or the need is outlined. And then there's an appeal for help. Verse 1 opens the prayer in this address to God. Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look. And see our disgrace, a direct address to God. We're reminded again, that's all that they need to say, the poet needs to say, the prayer needs to start. 
for us to be reminded of where we've been in these last four chapters. We're reminded again of the debris of the scene that we've been living in, in this tour of Lamentations. There are themes in this verse of abandonment and loss and shame. The verse opens with the word remember. This idea of looking and seeing what has happened, remembering. It's echoing all that's been described in the previous four chapters and in effect drawing them all together. It's like in the New Testament when Paul says that word, therefore. You know, he's grabbing his whole big theological idea that he's been working in whatever book it is and moving into something practical or some application or, or something. It's, therefore means whatever has been said, bring that idea forward. That's what's going on here. The word disgrace conjures the idea of shame. Shame is a dimension of suffering that's too often overlooked. Take your pick in the ways that the people of Jerusalem suffer in this book of Lamentations. The temples fall, abuse, starvation, injury, loss, grief, being looted, taken hostage, captive, or many other things that we've covered and we will look at again in a moment. You might want to add your own experiences from your life or something that a loved one has been through into this sort of situation. But when we suffer, we're debilitated. Feelings of weakness and helplessness, especially before other people, tends to have the sad effect, the tragic effect of eroding our sense of dignity. And it shouldn't. Because rationally... That can happen to anyone, and it does. But shame and suffering aren't rational things, are they? At the opening of this prayer, by voicing the community's sense of shame, these feelings are validated for that community, but also for us. You don't have to feel shame. It's quite natural. Even though you feel it, it's validated, and God understands it. Alongside physical, spiritual and psychological pain, we're able to be consoled and liberated by God's inclusiveness. There is space for those of us who feel shame on top of our pain. So that's the first verse and it's the address to God. And then we move into verses 2 to 18, which is the second part, which is the description of the complaint or the need that happened in this community lament, this community prayer. Verses 2 to 18 um, are 17 of the chapter's 22 verses. In essence, 77% of this chapter is complaint, if you think about it that way. And they're serious complaints, and they certainly get them across to God. Ones that we know well and truly by now. There's no structured narrative, there's no story here of going through this section. I can't sugarcoat it. Things are bad. And the people of Jerusalem have a long and serious list that they itemise before God. Let's fly through it and just remind ourselves of what is there. They're dispossessed. Verse 2, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. There they are, on the highways and byways, in such pain. And as if there's anything structural, and if there is anything any building structural or solid that's left after the sacking of Jerusalem, it's been taken and repossessed by the invaders. The idea of inheritance here is about property. 
the family house that generations will live in together or the property that a living will be eked out of on land are demolished or taken. These people have nothing and the foreigners have what is available. They've lost so many loved ones that their whole family structure and makeup has changed. Verse 3, we have become fatherless, our mothers are widows. This is a profoundly disturbing reality of war and dispossession. It seems that in this scene that no one was untouched by the sheer grief that would happen. They're now orphans or widows. Typically in Jewish society, orphans were meant to have special care and provision, but none is possible. Their whole societal structure, their family structure has been smashed. The cost of living has become unbearable. Now we talk about cost of living issues, which are real, but for these folks, they were struggling to buy water or wood for the stove. Not that they had any food to cook on the stove, but at least staying warm might have been something. Verse 4, we must buy the water we drink or wood can be had only at a price. They were exhausted. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We are weary and find no rest. They couldn't sleep because they had to be on guard. Perhaps some sleep would have been a comfort, at least of some kind of comfort, but they were deprived of that. They had to look behind their back at every turn, lest they be hit or beaten or murdered. They were dependent on submission to other nations for subsistence living. Verse 6, we submitted to Assyria and Egypt to get enough bread. Slaves rule over them. Verse 8, obtaining food is dangerous. Verse 9, they have a fever and are ill. Verse 10, our skin is as hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. Verse 11, the women have been brutally violated and raped. Leaders are royal and loyalty have been hung, impaled or in chains in verse 12. This is the list of complaints. It's a long and it's a real list. Young men are in slavery under hard labour, verse 13. Young men toil at the millstones. Boys stagger under loads of wood. The elders at the city gate are gone. There is no music, verse 14. Joy is gone from our hearts, our dancing has turned to mourning, verse 15, which is a complete reversal of David's experience in Psalm 30, verse 11. You turn my wailing into dancing, you remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. Deliberately placed here, unwound. That's how bad it is, it's the reverse. Verse 16 says, the crown has fallen from our head, woe to us for we have sinned. Now, you might initially think that that refers to royalty or dignity, or, or, or digni- uh, you know, dignities, which of course are included previously. But the crenellated walls of a city were often likened to a great crown that would adorn the city. Here's a photo of a city's fortified wall, and you can see how they came up with this image of a crown. The crown has fallen from our head. So in verse 16, we read that the crown has fallen from the head. That means that the city walls have crumbled and Jerusalem is in ruin. Very vivid image. Amos predicted, Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land, with no one to lift her up, in Amos 5.2. And it would take 70 years until Nehemiah rebuilt these crumbling walls. This is the scene that Nehemiah saw 70 years later. They said to me, Imagine 70 years of 
those strong walls that did look like a crown, just stones lying on the ground. And Nehemiah saw, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then in verses 17 and 18, the end of this list of complaints summarizes the general condition and the emotional climate of the people in their list of grievances. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate with jackals praying over it. So the city is in ruin. The walls and the temple are leveled. The people are dead, wounded or in exile. And any sign of rebuilding or restoration cannot be seen. Indeed, will not happen for 70 years. In fact, Jeremiah had already prophesied that twice. The first time was in Jeremiah 25.11 where he said, This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And the second time that Jeremiah said this will be a more well-known passage to you, as of, um, which says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Jeremiah promised that there would be a good future for the Jerusalemites in 70 years. But that meant that unless they were an infant, there was probably little chance that the people who expressed the grief and trauma in these chapters would see it. Maybe you and I will read Jeremiah 29 a little differently in the future in a larger context. So remembering the three-part structure for a prayer, we now enter the final section, their appeal for help. This is the appeal that Lamentations made. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore, to, restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return, renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. That's how it ends. It's firmly directed, this final uh, appeal for help is firmly directed to their only source of hope. It starts with you. It starts strongly. Verse 19 is a good start. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. But we must not get on with ourselves thinking that Lamentations in its last three verses is going to get any more positive because verse 20, why do we, you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? 
This is a very sober prayer. There's no possibility here of a utopian, romantic, Pollyanna-like end to this book. The scars are too great. And there is comfort in that for us, friends, who carry scars. Scars here that will be seen on these people's bodies and in their souls for the rest of their lives. Scars like survivors of the Jewish Holocaust carried, reminded by their tattooed identification numbers every day of a past horror that they could not or should not shake. Scars that any victims of a trauma or grief carry. It's not so much that the scars go away. Rather, we learn to live with them. And that was what C.S. Lewis concluded. A turning point that we learn to live with. Yes, there were promises from the prophets, like Jeremiah, that uh, eventually there would be restoration. But it would not be for the majority of the people who were praying this prayer. Their comfort could only be for their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and onwards. Isaiah too would speak words of comfort to the Jerusalemites after the great cost they paid from his warning, despite his warnings. When Isaiah said, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So there was the possibility of comfort for some, hope for them in the final verses of their prayer, mixed with sobriety about what would and could and did happen. It concludes, Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. You know, right back in Genesis, we read the story of Noah and his ark. Genesis 6, 11 summarizes it like this. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to, I'm going to, put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And Genesis 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 tell the story about the ark and the flood and the animals. And of course at the end of the rainbow that God gave as a sign that a flood like that would never happen again. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. But of course, after that, there were indeed more people who went away from the ways and standards of the Lord and lived how they wanted and did what they wanted. 
And this cycle, this kind of cycle developed throughout the story of Israel of sin and then God's judgment and then grace. And the Old Testament goes through the story of Moses where he laid down the law so that they knew what God's ways were. And the successes and failures of conquering and settling in the land of Palestine, the land flowing with milk and honey amongst all the other peoples who followed other gods. And the need for judges and then Israel's plea for a monarch so they could be like all the other nations around them. Even though God wanted to be in relationship with them as their king, but would they listen? No. So God gave them the desires of their hearts. Until finally, despite the warnings for the, from the prophets, they got what we have been hearing about. Catastrophic military, political, social and religious destruction in a way that would change them forever. A turning point. But after this, despite God faithfully going through with his promises and restoring Jerusalem, did they change and really learn their lesson? They even lost the book of the law, the Torah, and the the book of Ezra records how they found it and the awful consequences of not faithfully following the word for Israel and having to go back and relearn it and refind it. What became painfully obvious in all of this history was that there had to be another way. For left to our own devices, humans just kept breaking God's law and damaging other people. Even the religious leaders of Israel became complicit in backroom deals and hypocrisy and abuse of power upon the weak. There just had to be another way. As we've seen these five weeks, Lamentations was bad. And in Lamentations, bad is horrendously bad. But right back as Noah, as I've just referred to, Noah and the ark, God had promised that he would not abandon the project. And so if we were reaping such havoc upon ourselves, God had to find another way. And it's actually still the case today if you look around the world in so many ways, the ways that we are reaping havoc and harming ourselves. There has to be another way. So John, in the Gospel of John, describes God's plan. John says, Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, perish, but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It had become clear that only God himself could fix the problem. So the essence and nature of God himself called forth his own son to show the way and make a way. God is love. And love went into action, which is what Jesus became. The human project that Jesus entered had become such a maelstrom that the powers threatened, attacked, and ultimately killed him in the hope that God would be silenced. And we remember that 
on Good Friday when darkness thought that it had won. It didn't, as we know from Resurrection Sunday. And this is how Paul described Jesus' victory in 2 Timothy. Paul said, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Jesus Christ before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So we end this five-week tour of Lamentations knowing that we can pour out all our pain and doubt and trauma and grief upon God because it is his, because he is loving and compassionate enough to handle it. You can have that hissy fit. He can handle it. And there is nothing that we need hide from God because he's seen it all. And that God is faithful to his promises and will find a way, even though there are no guarantees that the result will be our preference or according to our timetable. And that even when you're completely defeated and hopeless and feel nothing, God is still there for you. We come and go. The Lord is solid ground. As the poet summarized in Lamentations 3, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. And finally from Lamentations, we learn, and importantly, that our own resources and wisdom are not enough. It's been said that Jesus Christ is the meeting place of eternity and time, the blending of deity and humanity, and the junction of heaven and earth. S.D. Gordon wrote that Jesus is God spelling himself out in language that people can understand. There had to be another way to fix the mess that it had become. The Emperor, Emperor Napoleon is said to have reflected this when he was on St. Helena. He said, You speak of Caesar, Alexander, of their conquests, of the enthusiasm they enkindled in the hearts of their soldiers. But can you conceive of a dead man making conquests with an army faithful and entirely devoted to their memory? My army's forgotten me while living. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and myself have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men, it was written 200 years ago, millions of men would die for him. I have so inspired multitudes that they would die for me. But after all, my presence was necessary. The lighting of my eye, my, the, of my voice, a word from me. Then the sacred fire was kindled in their hearts. Now that I'm on St. Helena in exile, alone, chained upon this rock, who fights and wins empires for me? 
What an abyss between my deep misery and the eternal reign of Christ who is proclaimed, love, adored, and those whose reign is extending over all the earth. Lamentations takes us to the brink of human misery and destruction. It presents us with the dilemma, indeed the existential crisis of what it is like without God and without hope. What it is like when God is silent, which can be something that us or any of our loved ones endure in grief and loss. And it teaches us that that's okay. And God is still there. Because Jesus too experienced pain, despair and being forsaken. For he was fully human. Lamentations peters out. It ends here. We have a couple more sacred writings in our Old Testament before this 400 year gap. As the cosmos waited for a heavenly solution to this earthly problem. Lamentations prepares us for our need for God's solution. As we enter these next two weeks, we enter into Palm Sunday when the fickle crowds cheer hosannas, Good Friday when the Son of Man is killed, unjustly and cruelly humiliated, and then Easter Sunday when he rises from the grave, resurrected in hope and conquers death forever. Lamentations walks us and prepares us, our hearts, our minds, for the season that we enter into. What about hot cross buns and Easter bunnies and holidays and all those sorts of things? It's this sober season when we realised that God saved the world. And through faith in Jesus Christ, his son, we too can be saved. We too can receive the salvation that frees us from being tied down into hopelessness. And we too have a God who allows us all of the dimension of human feeling, but gives us a future hope, a better future that we can look towards. Let's pray. Let's prepare our hearts for Easter. Let's pray. Loving God, as we've gone through this book of Lamentations, we've learned so much about the real cost that your people in Jerusalem paid as their city was ruined, as they suffered so. But we've also learned, Lord, that in our human ability, there's not enough and we can't fix the dilemma. So we thank you that we know that you came and did it yourself. You lived, you taught, you ministered, you showed a way, you made disciples, you started the movement, and then you were killed. And yet you rose through that and conquered death and called us as your disciples, as your followers, to live in hope, to live in faith, and to share it in the world. As we go into this season of Easter, Lord, the fickleness of Palm Sunday and riding in on a donkey and the crowds cheering who five days later would turn against you, 
we thank you that you did not turn against us. Help us worship you and praise you, follow you, and give our lives afresh to you, because that is the source of hope in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Andrew. Will you? Will you